our text this morning is, is uh, uh, still, still in Romans 9, 27 to 33. And if you uh, notice the, the title of the sermon, The Value of Hard Work. You know, in, in our economy, in our world, we appreciate hard work. We talk about it a lot and the value of it. Um, just, just if you have a chance, Google quotes about hard work. And there are a million quotes pop up everywhere. Um, in our world, we, we appreciate someone who works hard. And really, we have very little use for someone who doesn't. And, and truly, in many ways, this is biblical. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not denying this. this. This absolutely is biblical. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul advises, I mean, this is a church that Paul loves. He loves the Thessalonians greatly. It's probably one of his favorite churches. But, and Paul advises the idle and those that wouldn't work. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he said, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear, and, and so we hear there's some among you that are idle, that are, that are not busy. They're busybodies. So, so certainly hard work is important. But not for everything, is it? You know, that's, that's a look. Not all hard work is productive. I remember a laborer that we had years ago. Uh, one of my favorite laborers, one of mine and Carol's favorite stories about laborers, and, and I'm sure that, that anybody that's worked around other laborers also have stories about, about laborers who worked hard that were not productive. But uh, this, this is one who he really did. He, was, he worked always, always worked hard. Would it be okay if I said he wasn't necessarily a smart laborer? Would that be okay? You wouldn't. One day, um, we 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 sent him around the side of a house to take down the scaffolding, and and I mean, because we knew you he'd go around and he would work so hard, and he was systematic about it. So he went over there, and this whole side of the house had been scaffolded, you know, and and he he attacked the scaffolding the same way he did everything with with really just knit grit and just hard work. And so the first thing he did is he took down most of the boards, got, all, got most of the boards off, just left a few up there to, to walk on. And the next thing he did is he started taking down all the braces, the cross braces, started taking them all off. I mean, he was, he was at it. He was working hard. And his plan had been, um, after he took down the boards and the braces, he was going to start taking off the jacks. Didn't quite work. Once he took the braces down, the jacks beat him to the ground, you know. He worked hard, but it just, it just didn't really help the situation. It didn't help his, his work. He, he ended up creating a lot more work and a lot more damage than, than uh, um, he started off. He ended up in a worse place than, than before. It took us more time to clean up the mess and to replace it than it was before. Sometimes hard work can do that to us. So uh, I know odd ter- title and introduction for the sermon, but uh, let's read. I think it'll make sense later on. We'll see that you know that the value of hard work. Romans nine twenty seven to thirty three. Romans nine twenty seven. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully. 
and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Last week, as we studied Romans 9, we saw that salvation, we saw the salvation that God has brought on all of us. And all through Romans 9, as we studied in the last weeks, we have seen that this salvation that God has brought on us. And in verse 24, we saw, he said, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That this us, this one salvation that God has wrought, that God has brought on us, is us, the Jews and Gentiles. That, that, and we mentioned that last week. That, that it's very, very important that we notice who the us is in this case. That at this point, Paul is, is calling us, is is. It's the um, those whom God has made His people. Us is the ones who who see God as His people. That God has has shown mercy on us. God has loved us. We have us. We have seen His glory. And in the passage, verse twenty-five has been applied to all of us, as indeed He says in Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And we said these are the, the, those, those sons of Hosea and Gomer. And it says they will be called, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And this was all accomplished because of the firstborn son, who is named I will punish in Hosea. Has been punished and a door of hope has been opened for us in the valley of Achor. We saw that in Hosea 2.15. And I will give her a vineyard and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And we said, this is Christ. And, 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 and you know, this picture of, in, in Romans, this picture of salvation in Romans 9, you know, as, as we've said before, it really smacks you in the face with God's sovereignty over salvation. You know, you can't read Romans 9 and, and, and not come away from there well, as we said in Sunday school, yeah, you can. You can read Romans 9 and not come away from there with a complete conviction over God's sovereignty, but it's hard. You know, there are some passages, it doesn't take a whole lot of mental gymnastics. Romans 9, Romans 9 if you read that and still come away from there with this ideal that, that, that you are in charge of your salvation, you really got to jump through some hoops, don't you? Because this is really, I mean, he really does just, 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 he really hits you in the face with it. You know, and as, and as I've mentioned before, just reading this chapter, just reading this chapter a lot, just straight through, it's enough to make some people fighting mad. 
I mean, there, there are certain situations you don't read Romans 9 without planning on fighting somebody. Either verbally or, or actually, you know. <laughs> it's, that's just the way it is. You know, it, it, you don't even have to comment on it. You know, just read Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated and people start bristling. You know, you can just see it. You know, it's, it's, it's all over them. Um, or that, you know, that God the potter has the right over the clay to do what he wants to. Why just kind of like, wait a minute now, you know? Or that God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. Trust me, this will get people upset. You know, this, 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 is, this is not what we want to hear. So, so here it is in Romans 9, God is just, he is just, or Paul has just told us that God is absolutely sovereign over salvation and it just depends on God. So, if it is just God who does it, and, and, and more than that, that God has to endure with great patience vessels of dishonor, why does he make so many of them? Why are there so many vessels of dishonor? Okay, God, I get it. You, you, you want to show me your, your glory? You want to show me? You're going to make some vessels of dishonor? Make three or four of them. You know, but, but th- th- he doesn't. He makes a lot of them. And this is the problem. Why is it in verse 27? Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Now, this is the Israel whom God has chosen. This is the Israel whom, whom God had led out of, out of Egypt. This is the Israel whom God, for over a thousand years at this time, has endured and patiently loved and, 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 and cultivated and, and done everything for. Isaiah cries out in Romans 9, 27, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. A remnant, a few, or as the Greek says, literally, shall be being saved. So it's this ongoing, only a remnant shall be being saved. So Paul's quoting Isaiah 10 in this, and here he absolutely states that though there are a multitude of the sons of Israel, only a remnant shall be saved. And just as a kind of a side note, because we'll deal with it much later, that, that it's important to note at this time that very soon in chapter 11, in verse 26, Paul's going to say that all of Israel will be saved. So when we get over there, we have to reconcile the fact that here, only a remnant shall be being saved. And later on, he's going to say all of Israel will be saved. But as we'll see over there, when we get over there to that, of course, we're going to find out that he said in verse 26, and in this way, that we'll spend a whole lot of time trying to discover what is this way. And we know that as we look, it's grafted in because the Gentiles are grafted in. But that's not the goal today. Uh, we're not trying to, to reconcile those today, but, but it's important. We will come back to this. So, uh, um, but, but for now, because we're trying to understand 
how a sovereign, all-powerful God can choose a people for himself, make them as numerous as the sand of the sea, and yet only a remnant being saved. That this is what we're trying to understand today. So Paul goes on in that, in that chapter 9, quote, and continues the Isaiah quote by saying that it was right or that God was doing righteousness by doing this. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord, has, if the Lord of hosts have not, had not left his offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Please read this very carefully here. That the Lord will carry out his sentence. His sentence. That, that sounds more like a judge, doesn't it? Not a potter. You know, if it was a potter, it would say, God would be carrying out his decision. But he doesn't say that, does he? He said God is carrying out his sentence. That he's right in carrying out his sentence. And that God judged them as Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that Sodom and Gomorrah was judged for their wickedness. We read about them in Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. And in chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord said, Behold, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, that God goes down and sees their wickedness and destroys them. So here we've been reading all about this, that God, like a potter, he makes these vessels of dishonor. And here, Paul's saying that God's going to carry out his sentence against them, like a judge, because of the wickedness. So in chapter 9, it's been so clearly about God's sovereignty. But here we see the change, that there must be an accountability for man's responsibility. Man must be held accountable for his responsibility. That there must be this point of sentence like a judge over man. You know, so it's e so easy for us to come off the rails and, and fall into one ditch or another. It's so easy for us to say, well, absolutely, it is God who chooses. It's God who makes the clay for honor or dishonor. It is God who has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. It's easy for us to fall into that and forget, as Matt said in Sunday school, that God has set up a, a, an absolute a, a law up here, standard, by which all men everywhere are judged. Now, it is God's right Please hear me. It is God's right and in his power to make it completely about his choice. And in so doing, he would always be just and right. It would never be unfair or unjust for God to make it completely his choice. God could make every one of us puppets. He made us. He could do it any way he wanted to. He would not be unfair and unjust to do this. But God in his sovereign will has given men a choice, a response to make. 
Now we see here in Romans 9, 30-31. Every man in here, every person in the world has a response, a choice to make. In Romans 9, 30-31, we see Paul starting off this section with a question. And Rick and I talked an often recently. Doesn't Paul love his questions? He loves these questions to make us stop and think and, 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 and consider this. Another one of his questions, what should we say then? What should we say? How, how do we reconcile this? How do we deal with the sovereignty of God and the sentence brought upon the sons of Israel? It's the first, he says, and it's, he's trying to help us understand this. First, that there is a group of Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. These guys did absolutely nothing. This group of Gentiles who did absolutely nothing have obtained They weren't looking for righteousness. They weren't searching for God. They weren't trying to be saved. Yet God had mercy on them. God, in his infinite grace and mercy, he looked at them and said, these are the ones I will have mercy on. These are the ones I will have compassion on. And he had that. He had mercy on them. God had mercy on them. And that is, that is, they, what they got, this righteousness, is a righteousness that is by faith. That is, they responded in faith. They believed. They did not believe in order to get righteousness. The righteousness is a gift from God. We know that, Romans 3.24. They believed in order to see or to recognize the righteousness that God had given us through Jesus Christ. When God had mercy on us, when God revealed his glory of himself to us, the Gentiles and the Jews, we responded in faith. We believed that God had given us his, that is, Jesus Christ's righteousness. We believe that this righteousness we have is his righteousness that he has put on us. We believe that. And we entered into his rest. This is our response. We have to respond. We have to respond. When God reveals his righteousness and we see the beauty and the glory of Christ, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We respond. We believe. We rest in him. We trust him. We see that he is the source of all right. And there's nothing I can do to add to it. There's no work I can do. I can try. As Paul talks about that in Galatians, he said, who has so bewitched you? You begin in faith, but now you want to try to continue in works? That's anathema. How can you do that? You've seen it. You've seen him, so you rest. But what happened when God revealed his glory to ethnic Israel? What was their response? And, 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 you know, it's important, as Jack said yesterday, you know, God did not pursue the Gentiles more than he pursued ethnic Israel. God didn't, God didn't seek us harder than he sought them. God revealed himself to both. And if, if you're curious about how God revealed himself, you can read Exodus 19 and 20. How God showed himself on Mount Sinai. How God, how God called the people and said, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm gonna, here I am, I'm going to show it to you. 
And then, and then Exodus 20, the, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. And all this is God revealing his glory. But how did Israel respond? Romans 9, 31. But the Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. When God revealed himself, they pursued righteousness. They chased after it. God revealed himself on Mount Sinai and Ten Commandments, and they responded by striving after righteousness, by working for this, by, by seeking after it. Their response was worked, and they worked hard. Make no mistake, they worked hard to achieve righteousness. They worked hard in this. And they, they even added more laws to help them achieve this righteousness. And they did achieve some righteousness. We know that because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, apparently they achieved something. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They worked hard to achieve the righteousness. It just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So Paul asked this question. Uh, Paul asked the question for us: Why? Why didn't they succeed? Why wasn't it enough? Why didn't they achieve the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They thought they could get righteous enough through their efforts. And I can't wonder, I can't help but wonder how many of them then, or how many now and, and then, thought that, that their righteousness would be enough. You know, I could almost, as I was thinking about that, I could almost hear people saying, well, no, I, I'm not perfect, but, but I'm more righteous than those people are. So that ought to be enough, right? That should be good enough. And, and, the sad part is, you know, you, you, if you've been in church much, you've seen it. You've heard it. Well, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, but, but I do more than that person does. I'm more righteous than they are. Or, you know, God has to take into account how hard I'm trying. Right? God just has to. He has to take into account how much effort I'm putting into this. How hard I'm trying Surely, surely God appreciates my efforts. Doesn't he? Or, you know, I'm only human, so, so he, he's got he's to appreciate how sincere I am. And as long as I'm sincere, and I sincerely believe, and as long as I sincerely try, that's good enough, right? Right? Instead... God is looking for absolute perfection. So what about my work? What about my efforts? Doesn't it have any effect? Yes, good news, yes, absolutely. It has an effect. All your work and all your effort makes you twice a child of hell. So not really good news, but news. 
Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Here you are, you're working. You're working so hard. You're working to achieve righteousness. You're trying. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You've made it worse through your effort and through your working. You see, the one who does nothing knows he did nothing. Knows he did absolutely nothing. But the one who works thinks they did something that will happen, and, and, and they think they've accomplished something. Look what I've done. Look what I'm doing. I'm trying so hard. They have pride in it. I can have a sense of accomplishment. Even if your work is nothing more than to believe and to pray. I believed and I prayed, therefore I have salvation. I can take pride in that. I can take joy in that. If I believe and pray, then I will be saved as opposed to seeing my faith as a response to what God has done. Do you see everything you've ever done as a response to what God has done, what he's done? Or do you see it as, look what I've done. I repented, I prayed, Do we write down in our, the cover of our Bibles what we've done or what God's done? I wrote in my Bible, look what I did. Or do I write down, look what God did that first Easter for me? Which one do we write in our Bibles? See, because of their work, because of their efforts, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Back to 9, verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Their work and their effort leads to pride. And this makes it harder to accept that which must, I re repeat, must be accepted with a poor spirit. The only way to receive this is by being poor in spirit. The only way of receiving this is by recognizing there is nothing that you can do. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Because it's, it screams to us, there is nothing that you can do. You know, we've gotten so used to it, we don't, we don't often only see it. But it's saying that, that when you think of this, there's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is saying there is nothing that you can do. The only human effort, please note this, the only human effort that took place was to add to the suffering, was to mock and jeer the one who suffered. We did nothing except add to the punishment of Christ. 
We did nothing to relieve the suffering. When Rembrandt painted his picture, The Raising of the Cross, he painted himself at the foot of the cross, helping to raise the cross. He understood that this was his place. This is where every one of us was and still are. None of us saw Christ as righteous. And without God's mercy, none of us will, will seek after him without him working in our hearts. And see, this is our faith. This is our response. We recognize that, that we absolutely needed him and that we still absolutely need him. We are still poor in spirit. I am no more able to keep my righteousness or to attain my own righteousness now than I was the first time I ever heard of Jesus Christ. Not a bit. We always going to talk about growing. We haven't grown in our ability to make ourselves righteous at all. Jesus Christ. That's the stone that God's laid in, in, in Zion, that stumbling stone. That stone recognizing that we are absolutely dependent upon him. And that we stumble over it because we, we want to have a part in it. It's like, it's like um, Abraham this morning. Well, can't, can't Ishmael also be before your family? I love Ishmael. Man, look what, look what, I, I love him. He's been my son for 13 years. I love what, what I've done in him. Can't he have a part too? No. No, it's just what I do. But whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Christ, will not be put to shame. This is our promise. This is the promise of faith. This is our hope. Of trust. We, we are to always trust in Him. So, how do, I, how do I grow in my relationship? I see that desire. When, so, so, when I feel the, that call to grow, or when I feel that call to, when I'm struggling this, my place is always back to Him and say, God, I need you to work in my heart. I need you to touch my heart. I need you to make me love you more. I need you to help me to grow close to you. I need you to, 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 to see you more. I love that song we just read about having a passion for Christ only, but you will never have that passion by trying harder. He has to create it in us. We are so, so desperately in need of him to do a work in us. And we, this is our response. Our response is not to try harder. Our response is to turn to him and trust more. But we have to respond. We have to respond. And even today, even today in our churches, we have such a, 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 a struggle with this. You know, I have, the more I read Galatians and go back over that and I see, see what they did and, and, and Paul says you can in faith but you want to continue and work, the more I think that that fits us so much. You know, because it, it makes sense to us, doesn't it? It only makes sense to us. We begin, we begin in faith, but, but, but you've got to do something now. You've got to work hard now. And God said, no, you You've you got to trust me. I'm the one who did it. Do you trust me?
You know, God is absolutely sovereign. Absolutely, without question. He, he, began, he began the work. He is the one who begins the work in us every single time. But we have a response. We have a response to make. <clears throat> 